Chapter 7a of the Book of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bott, www.flacker.ca. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 7a. The living things that have come down to this earth attempts to preserve the system. That small frogs and toads, for instance, never have fallen from the sky but were on the ground in the first place. Or that there have been such falls up from one place in a whirlwind and down in another. Were there some especially froggy place near Europe, as there is an especially sandy place, the scientific explanation would, of course, be that all small frogs falling from the sky in Europe come from that center of frogeity. To start with, I'd like to emphasize something that I am permitted to see because I am still primitive, or intelligent, or in a state of maladjustment. That there is not one report findable of a fall of tadpoles from the sky, as to there in the first place. See Leisure Hours 3-779 for accounts of small frogs or toads said to have been seen to fall from the sky. The writer says that all observers were mistaken that the frogs or toads must have fallen from trees or other places overhead. Tremendous number of little toads, one or two months old, that were seen to fall from a great thick cloud that appeared suddenly in a sky that had been cloudless. August 1804, near Toulouse, France, according to a letter from Professor Pontus to M. Arago, Comptes Rendus 3-54. Many instances of frogs that were seen to fall from the sky, Notes and Queries, 8-6-104. Accounts of such falls, signed by witnesses. Notes and Queries, 8-6-190. Scientific American, July 12, 1873. A shower of frogs which darkened the air and covered the ground for a long distance is the reported result of a recent rainstorm at Kansas City, Missouri. As to having been there in the first place, little frogs found in London after a heavy storm, July 30th, 1838. Notes and Queries 8-7-437. Little Toads Found in a Desert After a Rainfall. Notes and Queries 8-8-493. To start with, I do not deny positively the conventional explanation of up and down. I think that there may have been such occurrences. I omit many notes that I have upon indistinguishables. In the London Times, July 4th, 1883, there's an account of a shower of twigs and leaves and tiny toads in a storm upon the slopes of the Apennines. These may have been the ejectamenta of a whirlwind. I add, however, that I have notes upon two other falls of tiny toads in 1883, one in France and one in Tahiti, also a fish in Scotland. But in the phenomena of the Apennines, the mixture seems to me to be typical of the products of a whirlwind. The other instances seem to me to be typical of something like migration, the great numbers and their homogeneity. Over and over in these annals of the damned occurs the datum of segregation. But a whirlwind is thought of as a condition of chaos, quasi-chaos, not final negativeness, of course. Monthly Weather Review, July 1881 A small pond in the track of the cloud was sucked dry the water being carried over the adjoining fields together with a large quantity of soft mud, which was scattered over the ground for half a mile around. 
it is so easy to say that small frogs that have fallen from the sky had been scooped up by a whirlwind but here are the circumstances of a scoop in the exclusionist imagination there is no regard for mud debris from the bottom of a pond floating vegetation loose things from the shores but a precise picking out of frogs only of all instances i have that attribute the fall of small frogs or toads to whirlwinds only one definitely identifies or places the whirlwind also as has been said before a pond going up would be quite as interesting as frogs coming down whirlwinds we read of over and over but where and what whirlwind it seems to me that anybody who had lost a pond would be heard from in simon's meteorological magazine 32-106 a fall of small frogs near birmingham england june thirtieth eighteen ninety two is attributed to a specific whirlwind but not a word as to any special pond that had contributed and something that strikes my attention here is that these frogs are described as almost white i'm afraid there is no escape for us we shall have to give to civilization upon this earth some new worlds places with white frogs in them upon several occasions we have had data of unknown things that have fallen from somewhere but something not to be overlooked is that if living things have landed alive upon this earth in spite of all we think we know of the accelerative velocity of falling bodies and have propagated why the exotic becomes the indigenous or from the strangest of places we'd expect the familiar or if hosts of living frogs have come here from somewhere else every living thing upon this earth may ancestrally have come from somewhere else i find that i have another note upon a specific hurricane annals and magazine of natural history 1-3-185 after one of the greatest hurricanes in the history of ireland some fish were found as far as fifteen yards from the edge of a lake have another this is a good one for the exclusionists fall of fish in paris said that a neighboring pond had been blown dry living age fifty two dash one eighty six date not given but i have seen it recorded somewhere else the best known fall of fishes from the sky is that which occurred at mountain ash in the valley of abadair glamorganshire february eleventh eighteen fifty nine the editor of the zoologist two dash six seven seven having published a report of a fall of fishes writes i am continually receiving similar accounts of frogs and fishes but in all the volumes of the zoologist i can find only two reports of such falls there is nothing to conclude other than that hosts of data have been lost because orthodoxy does not look favorably upon such reports the monthly weather review records several falls of fishes in the united states but accounts of these reported occurrences are not findable in other american publications nevertheless the treatment by the zoologist of the fall reported from mountain ash is fair first appears in the issue of one eight five nine dash six four nine three a letter from the rev john griffith vicar of abadair asserting that the fall had occurred chiefly upon the property of mr nixon of mountain ash upon page six five four zero dr gray of the british museum bristling with exclusionism writes that some of these fishes which had been sent to him alive were very young minnows he says on reading the evidence it seems to me most probably only a practical joke that one of mr nixon's employees had thrown a pailful of water upon another 
who had thought fish in it had fallen from the sky, had dipped up a pailful from a brook. Those fishes, still alive, were exhibited at the Zoological Gardens, Regent's Park. The editor says that one was a minnow and that the rest were sticklebacks. He says that Dr. Gray's explanation is no doubt right. But, upon page 6564, he publishes a letter from another correspondent who apologizes for opposing so high an authority as Dr. Gray, but says that he had obtained some of these fishes from persons who lived at a considerable distance apart or considerably out of range of the playful pail of water. According to the annual register, 1859-14, the fishes themselves had fallen by pailfuls. If these fishes were not upon the ground in the first place, we base our objections to the whirlwind explanation upon two data. That they fell in no such distribution as one could attribute to the discharge of a whirlwind, but upon a narrow strip of land, about 80 yards long and 12 yards wide. The other datum is again the suggestion that at first seems so incredible, but for which support is piling up, a suggestion of a stationary source overhead. That ten minutes later, another fall of fishes occurred upon this same narrow strip of land. Even arguing that a whirlwind may stand still axially, it discharges tangentially. Wherever the fishes came from, it does not seem thinkable that some could have fallen and that others could have whirled even a tenth of a minute, then falling directly after the first to fall. Because of these evil circumstances, the best adaptation was to laugh the whole thing off and say that someone had soused someone else with a pailful of water in which a few very young minnows had been caught up. In the London Times, March 2, 1859, is a letter from Mr. Aaron Roberts, curate of St. Peter's, Carmathon. In this letter, the fishes are said to have been about four inches long, but there is some question of species. I think, myself, that they were minnows and sticklebacks. Some persons, thinking them to be sea fishes, place them in salt water, according to Mr. Roberts. The effect is stated to have been almost instantaneous death. Some were placed in fresh water. These seemed to thrive well. As to narrow distribution, we are told that the fishes fell in and about the premises of Mr. Nixon. It was not observed at the time that any fish fell in any other part of the neighborhood, save in the particular spot mentioned. In the London Times, March 10th, 1859, Victor Griffith writes an account. The roofs of some houses were covered with them. In this letter, it is said that the largest fishes were five inches long and that these did not survive the fall. Report of the British Association, 1859-158. The evidence of the fall of fish on this occasion was very conclusive. A specimen of the fish was exhibited and was found to be Gasterosteus lyris. Gasterosteus is the stickleback. Altogether, I think we have not a sense of total perdition. When we're damned with the explanation that someone soused someone else with a pailful of water in which were thousands of fishes four or five inches long, some of which covered roofs of houses and some of which remained ten minutes in the air. By way of contrast, we offer our own acceptance that the bottom of a super geographical pond had dropped out. I have a great many notes upon the fall of fishes, despite the difficulty these records have in getting themselves published, but I pick out the instances that especially relate to our supergeographical acceptances. 
or to the principles of supergeography. Or data of things that have been in the air longer than acceptably could a whirlwind carry them, that have fallen with a distribution narrower than is attributable to a whirlwind, that have fallen for a considerable length of time upon the same narrow area of land. These three factors indicate, somewhere not far aloft, a region of inertness to this Earth's gravitation, of course. However, a region that, by the flux and variation of all things, must at times be susceptible, but afterward our heresy will bifurcate. In amiable accommodation to the crucifixion it'll get, I think. But so impressed are we with the datum that, though there have been many reports of small frogs that have fallen from the sky, not one report upon a fall of tadpoles is findable, that to these circumstances another adjustment must be made. Apart from our three factors of indication, an extraordinary observation is the fall of living things without injury to them. The devotees of St. Isaac explained that they fall upon thick grass and so survive. But Sir James Emerson Tennant, in his History of Ceylon, tells of a fall of fishes upon gravel by which they were seemingly uninjured. Something else apart from our three main interests is a phenomena that looks like what one might call an alternating series of falls of fishes, whatever the significance may be. Marut, India, July 1824, Living Age, 52-186. Fifeshire, Scotland, Summer of 1824, Renarian Natural History Society Translations, 5-575. Moradabad, India, July 1826, Living Age, 52-186. Rosher, Scotland, 1828, Living Age, 52-186. Moradabad, India, July 20th, 1829. Lynn Society Translations, 16-764. Perthshire, Scotland, Living Age, 52-186. Argyllshire, Scotland, 1830, March 9th, 1830. Recreative Science, 3-339. Faridpur, India, February 19, 1830. Journal Asiatic Society of Bengal, 2-650. A psychotropism that arises here, disregarding serial significance, or mechanical, unintelligent, repulsive reflex, is that the fishes of India did not fall from the sky, that they were found upon the ground after torrential rains, because streams had overflowed and had then receded. In the region of inertness that we think we can conceive of, or a zone that is to this Earth's gravitation very much like the neutral zone of a magnet's attraction, we accept that there are bodies of water and also clear spaces, bottoms of ponds dropping out, very interesting ponds having no earth at bottom, vast drops of water afloat in what is called space, fishes and deluges of water falling but also other areas in which fishes, however they got there, a matter that we'll consider, remain and dry, or even putrefy, then sometimes falling by atmospheric dislodgment. After a tremendous deluge of rain, one of the heaviest falls on record, all the year round, 8-255, at Rajkote, India, July 25, 1850, the ground was literally covered with fishes. The word found is agreeable to the repulsions of the conventionalists and their concept of an overflowing stream. But, according to Dr. Buist, some of these fishes were found on the tops of haystacks. 
Feral, a popular treatise, page 414, tells of a fall of living fishes, some of them having been placed in a tank where they survived, that occurred in India about 20 miles south of Calcutta, September 20th, 1839. A witness of this fall says, The most strange thing which ever struck me was that the fish did not fall helter-skelter, or here and there, but they fell in a straight line, not more than a cubit in breadth. See Living Age, 52-186. American Journal of Science, 132-199. That, according to testimony taken before a magistrate, a fall occurred February 19, 1830, near Faridpur, India, of many fishes of various sizes, some whole and fresh, and others mutilated and putrefying. Our reflex to those who would say that, in the climate of India, it would not take long for fishes to putrefy is, that high in the air, the climate of India is not torrid. Another peculiarity of this fall is that some of the fishes were much larger than others, or to those who hold out for segregation in a whirlwind, or that objects, say, twice as heavy as others would be separated from the lighter, we point out that some of these fishes were twice as heavy as others. In the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, 2-650, depositions of witnesses are given. Some of the fish were fresh, but others were rotten and without heads. Among the number which I got, five were fresh, and the rest stinking and headless. They remind us of His Grace's observation of some pages back. According to Dr. Bruist, some of these fishes weighed one and a half pounds each, and others three pounds. A fall of fishes at Futapur, India, May 16, 1833. They were all dead and dry. Dr. Bruist, living age, 52-186. India is far away. About 1830 was long ago. Nature, September 19th. 1918-46. A correspondent writes from the Dove Marine Laboratory, Cuttercoats, England, that at Hinden, a suburb of Sunderland, August 24, 1918, hundreds of small fishes identified as sand eels had fallen. Again the small area, about 60 by 30 yards. The fall occurred during a heavy rain that was accompanied by thunder or indications of disturbances aloft, but by no visible lightning. The sea is close to Hinden, but if you try to think of these fishes having described a trajectory in a whirlwind from the ocean, consider this remarkable datum. That, according to witnesses, the fall upon this small area occupied ten minutes. I cannot think of a clearer indication of a direct fall from a stationary source. And, the fish were all dead and indeed stiff and hard when picked up, immediately after the occurrence. By all of which I mean that we have only begun to pile up our data of things that fall from a stationary source overhead. We'll have to take up the subject from many approaches before our acceptance, which seems quite as rigorously arrived at as ever has been a belief, can emerge from the accursed. I don't know how much the horse and the barn will help us to emerge, but if ever anything did go up from this earth's surface and stay up, those damn things may have. Monthly Weather Review, May 1878. In a tornado in Wisconsin, May 23, 1878. A barn and a horse were carried completely away, and neither horse nor barn nor any portion of either have since been found. After that, 
which would be a little strong were it not for a steady improvement in our digestions that I note as we go along, there is little of the bizarre or the unassimilable in the turtle that hovered six months or so over a small town in Mississippi. Monthly Weather Review, May 1894. That, May 11, 1894, at Vicksburg, Mississippi, fell a small piece of alabaster that, at Bovina, eight miles from Vicksburg, fell a gopher turtle. They fell in a hailstorm. This item was widely copied at the time. For instance, Nature, one of the volumes of 1894, page 430, and Journal of the Royal Metropolitan Society, 20-273. As to discussion, not a word or science and its continuity with Presbyterianism, data like this are damned at birth. The Weather Review does sprinkle, or baptize, or attempt to save this infant. But in all the meteorological literature that I have gone through, after that date, not a word, except mention once or twice. The editor of the Review says, An examination of the weather map shows that these hailstorms occur on the south side of a region of cold northerly winds, and were but a small part of a series of similar storms. Apparently, some special local whirls or gusts carried heavy objects from the Earth's surface up to the cloud regions. Of all incredibilities that we have to choose from, I give first place to a notion of a whirlwind pouncing upon a region and scrupulously selecting a turtle and a piece of alabaster. This time, the other mechanical thing, there in the first place, cannot rise in response to its stimulus. It is resisted in that these objects were coated with ice, month of May in a southern state. If a whirlwind at all, there must have been very limited selection. There is no record of the fall of other objects. But there is no attempt in the review to specify a whirlwind. These strangely associated things were remarkably separated. They fell eight miles apart. Then, as if there were real reasoning, they must have been high to fall with such divergence or one of them must have been carried partly horizontally eight miles farther than the other. But either supposition argues for power more than that of a local whirl or gust, or argues for a great, specific disturbance of which there is no record, for the month of May, 1894. Nevertheless, as if I really were reasonable, I do feel that I have to accept that this turtle had been raised from the Earth's surface somewhere near Vicksburg, because the gopher turtle is common in the southern states. End of chapter 7a. Recording by Don Bott, www.flacker.ca.